Cool. Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Ravlick. Thank you for joining me. One of the things that you will have noticed over the past little while is media conversation and general conversation politics is centred on how people engage in public discourse. Those, comment, those pieces of commentary can range from uh, the way in which people on Twitter react to media personalities and other personalities for that matter. It can also lead to what topics are fashionable and not fashionable for different cohorts in society. Each of these issues has a consequence. And to discuss that on this particular podcast, I've got, and I'm joined again by Gideon Ross, the Director of Policy from the Institute of Public Affairs. We'll be touching on a few of these issues in the next little while. Gideon, thanks for G'day, joining Tom. me again. Uh, great to be back. Yep, we had some reaction to your last one, so I thought we'd better get you back. <laughs> now, and it was generally complimentary, I have to I have to hasten to add, and people who don't normally, uh, normally pay attention to what the Institute of Public Affairs does. So thanks for coming back on. Now, one of the things we've noticed over the past little while, and particularly over the, over the past couple of days, is that there are certain personalities on television and elsewhere that seem to attract a pylon uh, whenever they do something on air that doesn't appeal to uh, for people. For example, the other night there was a, an interview Lee Sales did uh, with the Prime Minister uh, it has been characterised as one where she got, she perhaps interrupted the Prime Minister a bit more than she perhaps should have. The And in, the internet went completely and absolutely nuts. Twitter went nuts and ended up being somewhat abusive. Um, why do you think that actually happens? Uh, sorry, sorry, Tom. I, it was cutting in. Now, what was the uh, your your question was about why there's a pylon and so on? Why, why, why there? Why do you think there are pylons? Uh, I, I don't particularly care which side mm. of politics people are or which organisation they yeah, they present. Yeah. Um, the qu- question is, why on, why on earth do people on social media? behave that way. So, look, there's been sort of, there's a theory that, that floats around, which I subscribe to, and, and people much smarter than I uh, have espoused, and that is that, you know, social media, especially Twitter, is inherent, well, let's face it, when we're talking about social media polls, we're generally talking about Twitter. I mean, a lot of other social media posts can get, you know, attention in the press, and, uh, you know, if you post something stupid on Facebook, then that comes out in the Daily Telegraph or the Daily Mail or the age or something like that. But um, when we talk about pylons, pylons, we're basically talking about Twitter. And that is partly because of the way Twitter is designed. It's an inherently performative sort of space. And it plays into the way in which, uh, you know, the, 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 the way in which people derive virtue and, uh, and righteousness, which is less about the old religious moralistic sort of guidelines that we had uh, in, say, you know, the 1950s and early 60s and so on. It's less about, you know, I don't know, the, the sort of recycling, you know, uh, sort of thing that was, you know, in its infancy in the, in the 80s and 90s. It's, it's really about 
uh, fighting racism, you know, fighting um, bad attitudes and people and, and, and calling out things. So if somebody says something and it's problematic or, uh, or, or it's, it's a, or, or offensive or whatever, you know, not only do you, do you register, you know, I mean, not only do you derive some sort of virtue from speaking out against it, but to be seen to be speaking out against it, to add, you know, when, when they see, uh, a tweet, you know, for example, my tweets that get ratios, the kids say, hope, thankfully there haven't been too many of them, but because um, there are a lot of good people on Twitter too, don't forget. And, you know, you don't see as much of them because of shadow banning and things like that. But when I get piled on, you know, typically what will happen is somebody with, you know, 5,000 to 10,000 followers will comment onto something I've said, retweet it. And then everybody else say, "Oh, I'm going to get a piece of this action too," and they all want to. They want to come up with the best insult, the best job, the best, the way of being either the most clever or the most forceful or the most entertaining in uh, registering their dissent and, and and adding their voice to the, the great call out because I don't know it's a part of human nature. I mean, it's not the first time there've been mobs. Mobs go back thousands of years. It's just now they're they're online and and compounding it is the part of human nature, and I know this is a very long answer, but this is an important point, compounding it is the, 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 the another part of human nature that long pre-existed social media, which is people feel safer and more capable of saying nasty things to somebody in writing, especially when they can't see them, and especially when they're anonymous, than they ever would in real life. And to demonstrate this propensity or this sort of part of, you know, how human beings interact with each other, um, there's a very interesting study and I can't cite it exactly, but there, there was a study done in, I think, the 1950s in the US where um, a, a research organisation wrote to a lot of diners in the South in the US and asked, would you let a coloured person, uh, as, a, as I were called back then, their words, not mine, but would you let a, a coloured person eat in your restaurant? And about 80% of respondents said, no, absolutely not. Um, then they sent a black guy or you know, a team of black people around to each and every one of these restaurants. And what they found was extremely few of the, those diners actually refuse service. You know, when, when the bloke was actually in the restaurant, their answer was very different to how it would have been in theory. So what that tells us is when people are face-to-face, generally as a result of, you know, deep evolutionary instinct, people, people uh, their, their, their default response is to be nice and agreeable and cooperative. But when you're online and when you're in writing, and especially when you're anonymous, all that falls away. So, look, I think, you know, people say, oh, the internet is... Is, is bad social media, is, is a propaganda tool, it's spreading misinformation, it's destroying our society, it's erasing our social bonds. I say, no, social media is great. I love social media. I tweet in my sleep. Uh, the problem with social media is that it, it facilitates the parts of human nature that we don't like. But every technological advance has done that. I mean, I remember when people were complaining about the fact that teenagers had mobile phones because they thought it was warping their mind. Uh, these days, you wouldn't send your teenage son or daughter out into the world without a mobile phone as a safety precaution. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's just it's just a reflection of, uh, you know, how people claim virtue and, 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 and the inherent nature of social media itself and human nature. I think the, the important point in what you've said is there's a tendency for people to... Um, I guess not being accountable for their own opinions online to some to some degree they're anonymous. Um, although I do note that there are some people who hide behind a pseudonym or a um, or a, a code name or whatever they want to call it because 
they're in they're in occupational roles where some of the things they say may cause them to be uh, to be removed. So anonymity can be used um, productively, if I can use that if I can use that for that term. But it's also not. It, it can also be a sign that we've got a a part of a generation that, that that's. Uh, that's trying to make cowardice a virtue. Yeah, well, correct. But I'll, you, you, know, you say some people hide behind anonymous profiles. I'd say that's at least half the damn platform. Um, but, you know, like I've, got, I've got no problem with that. A lot of people say, oh, you should have to declare who you are to, to tweet something. I say, I say, no, you know, but newspapers, you know, used to have people writing under pseudonyms all the time. That, you know, free speech is free speech. You shouldn't have to uh, necessarily declare who you are if you don't want to. But at the same time, uh, we have a responsibility to say, okay, well, look, you know, this bloke who said something a little bit controversial is getting crucified by social media. Should it, is it not important that 75% of people who are doing the polling are anonymous cowards? I think it just, you know, you should be allowed to do it, but, it, it, it you know, we, we should uh, calibrate the credibility of such asides accordingly. Now, the, you posted something not so long ago where a person who disagreed with a tweet of yours approached a person mm. close to you and made a, an allegation that is uh, rather defamatory. Yeah, um, yeah so... Can, can, you, can, can you take the, the listeners through uh, this, the, the, what happened, but also... How you felt when you discovered that had sure. occurred? Sure. So what happened was um, I got a call from my girlfriend uh, over the weekend, and, and she sent, uh, or and it's a flood of text. She sent me a message she'd gotten from Insta on Instagram from an, an account she didn't recognise, but it looked legit. It had you know uh, seventy five people it was following. It had a whole swag of posts and so on. Anyway, this person said uh, Gideon's cheating on you. He slept with my best friend. So she called me up and said, you know, this is what people are saying. And I thought, oh, my God. And I thought, no, wait a minute. I haven't done anything wrong. This is this is completely uh, frivolous. I said, no, 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 just keep getting more information. So she asked some questions of this person, whoever it was. And um, they said, oh, look, to be honest, it was just a troll because I didn't like something that your boyfriend said on Twitter. So anyway, I posted it and I said, well, it would be a shame if, uh, you know, uh, my followers didn't like this and jumped on Instagram to let this person know what they thought and they deleted their account anyway. So, um, but you know, to, to answer your question about how I felt, look, I was, it was a new one for me. I mean, I, I you know, um, I get a few funny emails and uh, direct messages, but nothing like that. But I thought, Oh, well, you know, it's, that's uh, the feral lift for you. Um, but my girlfriend was very, very shaken up because she's quite a private person and, and obviously very supportive of me, but doesn't want to be, in the spotlight like I sometimes am with my job. So she was really shaken up. Um, uh, but, yeah, look, again, it goes to my point. People are just capable of doing nasty things. And I think I think, I think, think in our political debate, uh, and I don't want to pin it on either the left or the right, um, although I think it tends to be more common around among the feral left, but I think there's this idea that if somebody's evil enough uh, and, sit and espouses ideas, this is the whole thing. You know, I haven't done anything to anybody all i do is talk all i do is write 
Um, but if your ideas are evil enough or, or create a quote unsafe environment, then any sort of retribution or direct action, so to speak, is justified. Uh, and uh, you know, that, that people ask, you know, about political polarization and everything else. Well, that's it. You know, if you want to end political polarization and the, the shocking state of our debate, we'll stop saying that ideas are so evil that they're off limits. You know, we need to bring back the art of civilized discourse. You know, it starts with, frankly, people like myself and, and with you, Tom. Uh, you know, we have to say, we have to live by the old adage, I disagree with what you say, but I defend to your death the right to say it. And, and you know, I, I, I'm not completely pure. I make a few, you know, puerile jabs on Twitter like, uh, you know, anybody does on that platform because that's the nature of the game. But I'd like to yeah, know we're doing anything, even remotely close to doing something like that. Well, um, you see, that there are a couple of issues that you've raised. One of which is a position or a view uh, that is put, and the other one is tone, right? Um, and they're two very different things, are they? Not? Um, yes and no. Um, well, why? I mean, I mean, this is I'm sort of about to contradict my own point, but uh, look, it's a matter of degree. Uh, people say, you know. There's this idea that uh, that civilized debate is calm debate, and I don't think that's always the case. I mean, people—I'll give you an example. People look at Parliament and they say, "Oh, when you turn on Question Time, it's so embarrassing. They just yell at each other. They don't get anything done. These are the people running the country." And I say to them, "Look, what would you prefer? Would you prefer, you know, um, the, the the sham parliaments they have in places like?" You know, China, for example, where all the delegates are appointed and nobody disagrees with each other and everybody just applauds all day long. You know, the price of democracy is that we do disagree and, and, and that people get passionate about what they believe in. And when people get passionate, they, they argue their point forcefully and sometimes they cross the line. Um, you know, that's different from, you know, trying to go after somebody's girlfriend or interfering with their personal life. But we, we shouldn't drain the passion out of politics. If we drain the passion out of politics, we'll end up with a very, very bland and vacuous public debate. And frankly, I think a politics should be more passionate, not less. I mean, elections in Australia are basically bribe wars. It's, you know, well, vote for me and I'll give you the free computer. Oh, well, vote for me, I'll give you the free hospital bed. We should be talking about ideas. We should be talking about the vision for the nation. We should be talking about why the other side, uh, you know, is presenting a, a, a bad or, or a, an unhelpful vision for, for, for the country and for for the people in it, you know, we, we should clash because it's only through the clash of opinions and ideas that we we further mankind's perennial search for truth. I agree that you know, there's a contest of ideas that needs to take place. That's common ground. But let me let me play or and riff on this particular point. If we take the uh, take the current situation in Victoria, where you've been just a little outspoken, and uh, you've got a rather nice collection, you've got a rather nice collection of masks you've thrown right, around yeah. on Twitter, which is interesting. Um, I'm still waiting for the one that comes out with the IPA logo. Oh, no, 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 it's, a, but, it's a private project. It's uh, yeah, it's it's just me. It, th those, oh, yeah, sorry, finish your question. I'll uh, give it a background. <laughs> but if you've got okay, you've got um, the the issue of lockdown 
um, and then transposed on top of the issue of lockdown all the legitimate points people raise is uh, in the case of anti-lockdown or anti-lockdown the way it's mm. happened. Um, Daniel Andrews sometimes gets called by people, you know, whether it be Chairman Dan or Dictator Dan or whatever else. Is, by tone, what I mean by tone is, is that uh, kind of moniker adding or detract, detracting from the point you're trying to make? Um, oh, well, so about the masks thing, so for your listeners, uh, basically, you know, as you'll probably know, uh, mask wearing is now mandatory in Victoria. Is it, sorry, not Victoria. The, the trolls on Twitter are already picking up on that. In metropolitan Melbourne and the Mitchell Shire, uh, mask wearing is now mandatory, which I, look, you know, frankly, I'm a, I'm a supporter of mask wearing. I think we should have been encouraged to wear masks from the beginning rather than told they don't make a difference. Um, but like every libertarian worth their salt, I'm not thrilled that now, after the fact, we have to compel people to wear masks under threat of fine. But anyway, so two weeks ago, I thought, geez, this is getting a bit serious in Victoria. I should wear a mask for my own protection, nothing to do with the damn um, requirement. It was long before that came into effect or was even announced. Um, so I went on Etsy and I ordered a few masks saying, you know, in the lockdown, sack Andrews, uh, reopen Melbourne, liberate Victoria. Anyway, so I posted them on Twitter today. And, you know, as usual, it's sort of the half of people asking where to buy them and half people are saying, you know, again, this idea that ideas are dangerous, saying, oh, you're putting lives at risk, you're, you're, you're endangering people. No, I'm complying with the law and wearing a mask because I think it's the right thing to do anyway. But I'm doing it in such a way that I'm, I'm you know, making a... a, a admittedly provocative political point um does tone take away from things well look i'd like to think that you know again i can i can i can give i can dish it out as as good as i can take it but um i'd like to think that you know i I at least have some sort of principle basis for everything that i say i'm not a not a you know some red team blue team drone like you know so many other people are um I, i think I think you can make something, in, and and the other thing is, you know, it's a, it's a fact of the internet that people love conflict, they love confrontation, they love, you know, all, you know, people love watching Ben Shapiro videos the most, the the ones that are him, you know, arguing with uh, millennial protesters in his in his lectures because people do really like debate. So I think you can provide a bit of colour and movement and 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 debate with a bit of passion. Uh, while still making a, a credible point and, and still and still being respectful, I might add as well. You know, you can have a robust but but civilized disagreement with somebody. So look, you know, I mean, it, it could be like uh, you know tuning. I mean, have you ever tuned into the drum? I know, I know, I'm sort of jumping all over the place, but you see the point I'm trying to make. If you jump jump into the drum, everybody's so sad, so serious and exhausting. You know, but people want. They want to be informed, and they want to be they want to have thought provoking content, but they also want something that's a little bit entertaining and a bit engaging and a bit different. So you know, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. If serious issues get, discussed I, in such a way I, I that get, people are uh, brought along for the ride. Yeah, I, I take it. I take your point, but it, it, it's it's the issue. It's the issue plus the way it's mm. expressed. It's not always. It's not always the underlying uh, underlying concept, yeah. um, right? And it, it becomes a it. What does concern me is that when you have a, when people have a discussion and you it it un, a good point can sometimes unravel because of the way it's presented, rather than because of 
any intellectual inadequacy. Sure, but I mean, look, you know, let's be honest here. Twitter is not a forum for deep intellectual discussion. You know, it has a 280... I've discovered that. I'm, I've tried to. I've tried to promote it. And no, well, and that, and that's on. Twitter. I, I said I love Twitter. I think it's a wonderful platform. I wish they'd stop shadow banning people um, and stop, uh, you know, um, interfering interfering with the discussion. But you know, you do. I mean, first of all, as a news aggregating service, it's it's the it's the best there is. You, you know, I'll I'll wake up every morning. I won't jump on the news websites. I'll firstly check Twitter. I mean, I will eventually. But the first thing I check is Twitter. That's where I get most of. My breaking news, to be honest, you do see people with interesting points to make. You do see things that have been reshared, you know, have gone viral and you otherwise wouldn't consider. You do see a lot of interesting threads. But for the most part, it's somebody, I saw a meme once floating around that said Twitter is like a dating app, but it matches people who hate each other. And that's that's basically it. You're not going to, um, it's not a think tank. Uh, people say, when I say something that's a little bit superficial, a bit snub, they say, oh, Oh, geez, that's some, you know, cutting edge research right there. I say, dude, jump on our bloody website and go to our research papers section. We have reports galore on all manner of serious and interesting public policy questions. But, you know, it's Twitter. Geez, you know, what am I going to do? Give you the, the you know, the pricey of capitalism and freedom in 280 characters or less? It doesn't work that way. It, and I take your point, but there's something else Twitter does that... Um, is interesting and is something worth discussing in the context of the observations made by Ida Butros just on, on resilience. You know, are people tough enough to do what they need to do? What are their personalities like? And one of the one of the things that we may not be aware of because we just do it is the image we create over a period of time with uh, Twitter posts and what that, what image that creates, what sort of mo- if you treat every every Twitter post as a as a mm. mosaic, I'd probably end up looking up Frankenstein. But <laughs> if you if you if you play uh, if you treat every Twitter post as a mosaic, what's the picture that somebody is left with? I you know. In terms of the millennial issue um, that Ida Butros raises, what does a generation of people do to the impression that someone like Ida Butros has by the way in which every post, which is a a tile in a mosaic, comes up? Uh, Every complaint, whether it's a coffee or whatever uh, else, that's gone wrong or a politician said something stupid or somebody or there's a massive argument on Twitter between people. What impression does that create? Yeah, so there are two sort of parts to your question. Um, so I'll deal with what the, the mosaic looks like because I think that's a really interesting point. And again, I'd say it's a function of the platform. And, you know, what, what's true of the, the, the mosaic or impression you get from Twitter as a whole is different from any from other platforms. You know, Facebook, for example, the the... The, the vibe of Facebook is basically people sort of congregating in their own groups, whether it be family and friends for sort of more social posts or all or, or manner of private and semi-open groups for political interest. Uh, you, you tend to gravitate towards things that you agree with and share them. Um, Instagram, the vibe of that is just sort of a big narcissistic panopticon where, uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, nothing wrong with people putting up photos of themselves and, and, uh, 
you know, running a sort of micro blog con- consisting of photos, but that's the vibe you get from there. Twitter is just a, a gigantic democratic bathroom war where you, you scribble on often anonymously, you know, whatever you like, and, and it, it's ugly and it's, uh, it's, it's heated and it's, uh, you know, a little bit unkind, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's it's not for everybody, but uh, it, it's it's there's a there's a there's an openness and a liveliness to it that you don't get in other places. You know, I I think that Twitter has its its problems, but a lot of the time they're a feature, not a bug. And you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Oh, and the second second part of your question that so you, you asked about Ida, so. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the, the debate de jour. This is the story about Arda talking about millennials being not particularly resilient and needing a hug and all sorts of other things. Now, I'm a millennial myself. I was born in 1987. I, I agree with Arda. I'm a, a self-hating millennial. Uh, I think millennials are, are the worst generation. Uh, and, I, and I say that in the sense that I don't think it's getting worse because Generation Z, I think, are a lot more resilient and entrepreneurial and mature in a lot of ways than millennials. Millennials are a... A product of the idea of the idea that the only thing that matters matters for a child's developmental uh, well-being is self-esteem and confidence, and no doubt those things are extremely important. But um, you know, having having realistic expectations or being realistic about the amount of work you need to put into something um, before you see any reward for it, I think that's important. I think. Uh, the idea that you, you, you need to delay gratification sometimes, you know, even for a militant hedonist like myself, I think that's important. I think the idea that there'll be things about the world and people in it that you won't like and you'll just have to put up with it, that's important too. I think those things have been lost. I think when we started to turn away from sticks and stones may break my bones, uh, you know, that's that's fair enough. You know, there, there is a, a, a serious reality of of psychological torment and and. People can verbally do terrible damage to each other, but to, to, to then extrapolate that and say that every, you know, speech, every mode of speech that's mildly disagreeable creates a, a quite unsafe environment, I think that's pretty bad. So you can imagine Ida's frustration with millennials at the millennials who work at the ABC would be Uber millennials. They'd be marching around all day in their lanyards with their keep cups and their, you know, petitions and all sorts of other things. I mean, that'd be a bloody nuisance. So, you know, I think Ida, Ida probably right on this one. Um, uh, speaking as someone who was born in the early oh, 70s, I wouldn't believe that for a second. Um, um, yeah, I do have grey hair, <laughs> Gideon. I will, I will confess that. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a 71 model, um, born with a rare disorder, so I copped it all in the playground. Mm. And what you learn very quickly is, yeah, lunchtime sports when you're on the mm. pitch. If you're not physically capable of playing volleyball as the next guy, you're going to be the last person picked yeah, on the team. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and that ain't going to change when you hit the hit the real world. And, and there are there are things about abilities and assessments mm. of what you do and how you do them. We might not like yeah. that fact, but. It, Given where I grew up, given the given the situation I grew up in, and given some of my experiences, I get that there are times you know, the world is going to be ugly. Um, but if you spend your every breathing moment, you know, denouncing mm. things, 
you're not going to get anything yeah. done other than other than be a be an activist yeah. and activism unless you got a job that gives you money for activism activism doesn't pay you yeah well, yeah correct um unless you unless you're lucky enough to work for a sort of political organization um but yeah no you're right that gives you that gives you the opportunity to rant all day. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Correct. Or you know, talk back radio or something. But um, yeah. So sorry. So so what what what's the question, mate? It's um in terms of in terms of well, I guess if we move on from there, how do you create a more resilient? Cohort? Well, as I said, I, I think Generation Z. You know. The, they lived through 9-11, the global financial crisis. I think they're probably a bit more resilient than, than my generation are who grew up, you know, in John Howard's Australia where everything was booming and hunky-dory and the biggest problem facing the country, according to the chattering classes, was that people, you know, bought too many flat-screen TVs and went on too many cruise ships. Um, so how do, you, how do you build resilience? Well, look, I, I think... Jeez, it's a, it's a, a... You've got a big question... For you know, before midday, uh, uh, for me, um, how do you how do you build resilience? Like, I, like I think, frankly, what we're about to go through in uh, the the twenty first century Great Depression that we've idiotically triggered will force resilience upon a lot of people. I think the generation up coming after Generation Z, whatever it's called, I think Generation Alpha or something. I mean, they'll be the the COVID babies. They'll be the the COVID kids. Uh, they all grow up knowing deprivation that uh, no generation has known since, um, frankly, before the baby boomers. So, sadly, that will go a long way of the way towards doing that. Um, and beyond that, you know, predictable answer coming from somebody on the right. I think it's up to families. I think it's it's up to parents to build resilience in their kids. I think it's up to parents to say uh, to to say, okay, well, you know, join that footy team or you know compete in that swimming race but you may lose you know helping children through that rather than going along with these silly ideas of not keeping score and all sorts of other things uh i i think we again self-esteem and confidence and and safety and everything else they're all extremely important things you know i don't want somebody listening to this and saying oh you know rosin thinks kids shouldn't have self-esteem of course i do but it should be balanced with realistic expectations about the world about how you you're treating the world how 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 to the the extent to which you can demand that the world revolve around you. I mean, you can you can real realistically expect. In fact, you have a right to expect nobody to um, hit you, but can you expect nobody to not offend you? I I, I think that this idea that that you can avoid all offence it, it's just it's it's turning us into a, a generation of girly men. I think it. it... Yeah, as I said to somebody the other day when I was having a conversation about the issue of what people are likely to say they take offence at, I said, "Well, if you're going to take offence, make sure you return it to the make sure you return it to the part of the shelf mm. you got it from, because somebody else is going <laughs> to want to use it next time." I like that one, but it, it and it comes. <laughs> Yeah, that'll appear on Paul Murray Live at some point in time, won't it? But the um, it, it it's to, to, again, it's the degree to which people um, engage with the topic and the degree to which they feel they need to find find a battle. Some battles don't need to be fought. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, 
Yeah, some bad ones don't need to be it's called. It's, it's judgment. At the end of the day, be, when, it, when you get to sort of um, your age, you're, you're in your mm. mid-30s, uh, and definitely when you get to my age, it's all about judgment. What fight do you take on? You can't fight everything in the world because that wears you down psychologically. Mm. And if it wears you down oh, psychologically, yeah, it, it ends up wearing you down physically. Yeah, it does. It, it's it does. And, and I it say this happens. as somebody who you know engages with public policy debate for a living, and some and 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 doing that, having been a political animal in one form or another since I was about fourteen years old, um, it does wear you down. You know, yeah. I love what I do. I, I I often say I have the best job in Australia doing what I do, but sometimes. You know, when when there's so much happening that that, that just seems wrong, for, frankly, particularly during this lockdown, seeing the destruction of a wonderful city like Melbourne by a, a, a lunatic like Daniel Andrews. I mean, uh, sometimes the war wins. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's it's I can see the psychological toll it will take on a generation who are raised to believe that the personal is political, that every um, every aspect facet of the human condition and the most basic of human nature becomes a, a pressing political problem and a debate. So yeah, it is about picking battles. You know, why are we talking about, oh, geez, what's a, what's a silly storm in a teacup story that's come along lately? I mean, nothing nothing jumps off the top of my head. You know the point I'm, I'm getting, you know, we we agonise over uh, you know, why Disney movies are too wide and things oh, like that, you know. Big... I mean, Jesus, you know, let's sleep in God's light. Well, well there's, one, there's one that happened hmm. the other day. Uh, which was uh, the the story taken off Twitter directly of the um, former UFC mm. fighter. Oh yeah, what was that one again? Who, who took issue? Who took who took issue with the mm. lockdown and wearing masks and all that sort of stuff, and it became a news yeah. item. Now, before Twitter came along, um, uh, you would never have even conceived that that would be a story that people pick up on and run with uh, as a as an item for a newspaper it just wouldn't mm. have happened right so there's a there's something else that may need to be considered and that is what's actually while there's a discourse yeah. on twitter how much of it is actually news well, yeah. as opposed to chatter as opposed to communication because Twitter being a public forum, and I know we've said a lot about Twitter over the past little while, but it, it, it's important because that's the way many people think they yeah. communicate. I think that's that's a great point, and that just shows how insular the journalistic class is, quite frankly. Um, you know, journalists tend to be people who've gone to RMIT or something and done a degree in journalism and, uh, you know, absorbed osmosis, the lunacy that happens at universities, uh, get involved in student newspapers, which are quite left-wing and everything else. Oh, right. and, uh, careful, I did a degree at RMIT oh. in, the in the 1990s. Nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I, mean, I did you know, a few uh, uh, subjects that would count towards a journalism gig uh, as part of my arts degree. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But what is the problem is that you know, it's like the point that Barry Weiss said, the, the Twitter is not the, on the master of the New York Times, but it's become the ultimate editor because Twitter is, uh, and this is why I say to people on the right, look, don't ignore Twitter. Twitter is, is puerile and full of lefties, but 
it sets the agenda because every politician's on it, every journalist's on it, every talking head like me is on it, uh, celebrities are on it, uh, politically interested people are on it and give live feedback to what they're seeing on, on shows like the ones I do on, on Sky, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the, the side effect of that is that, you know, back in the good old days, and I'm not the first person to make this point, um, back in the good old days, journalists, to find out what the pundits were thinking, so to speak, would go out and do a vox pop. And that speaks of, you know, random people walking to the shops or whatever, who are generally speaking a, a reasonably reliable sample of people in the street because they were literally people in the street. Um, nowadays, they, you know, don't have to grab their camera and their microphone and jump out to uh, Burke Street or something. They can just jump on Twitter. But if you take a, a sample of the reaction to a public policy issue from Twitter, you're going to get a wildly skewed result because it's, it's people who are either ideological or... or do, do politics in some way for a living. Uh, it's not an accurate re- reaction. But then, of course, what happens is a, a, a story in, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald about how Twitter, you know, there was a Twitter backlash against politician X. So politician X feels like they're forced to apologise or even worse still, uh, you know, um, the, uh, again, you know, typically millennial uh, soft left uni graduates who work in corporate affairs departments in major corporations will say, oh my God, there are 10 people who tweeted that, uh, you know, something on Sky News was problematic and, you know, advertisers should pull out. We better pull our, our advertising. I mean, I think that's a problem in our debate. I don't know how we, we deal with that. I think the problem, you know, what needs to happen is companies need to, to man up and, and the silent majority need to be better at saying to companies, look, you know, I'll, I'll support you if you back down. Colonial beer is a great example. You know, colonial beer, you know, they, uh, that, that, um, that bottle shop, Blackhearts and Sparrows, um, which I'm, I'm, no, I'm no longer shopping at, being the connoisseur of bottle shops that I am, um, you know, but, but the, the reaction to that, the people power that went out and, and flooded the bottle shops with a quest for Colonial, I think that's the kind, of, the, the kind of remedy we need. We need to just get away from, you know, get the public out of this idea that what, what, Trends on Twitter is not in any way represent well in some way, but not in a major way representative of, of the real life of the real world and, and the feelings of the general community. How do you uh, how do you mitigate that? Well, as I said, you know, um, uh, and there's a, there's a debate that's going on within right wing circles about how you deal with social media and how you deal with that. A lot of people say, oh, you know, social media needs to be regulated, and you know, we need to pass laws preventing banks from uh, pulling funding and so on. You know, I hate any legislative coercive solution my solution will be we just need to get over it we just need to let it work its way through society and you know in 10 years time i think we'll be looking back do you believe the companies were so scared of bloody twitter back once upon a time i think we'll get over it but in the meantime as i said we the people not necessarily myself because i'm quite a you know political character but people who are notionally conservative and not particularly engaged or active need to organise and need to stage consumer action of their own because, there's, you know, as the old adage says, if you don't take an interest in politics, politics takes interest in you. And as I alluded to, you know, the personal is political now. You know, that wasn't, wasn't the doing of the right or of sort of the quiet Australians, but if the fight is on, it's a fight we have to win. You know, if the personal is political, then we have to get politically active to, to defend our person, to pretend our, protect, protect our individual rights and, and identity. To not be subsumed by the mob, it's well, war there, now. There, there's another, yeah, well, there's another, there's another aspect of what I asked that merits mm. touching on, and that is, we mentioned that you know, Twitter becomes a source yeah. of news, and that the world is not entirely um, 
Twitter-based. Uh, and it may well be timely for people to remember that news values might not necessarily solely be who said what on Twitter at 5.29am in the morning. Yeah. There might be a need to go out and actually do, actually wear out shoe leather on some uh, on some issues in order to get beyond the Twitter yeah. demographic. Well, that, that well, that's right, and that's a matter. Of, I mean, like that's a matter of journalistic practice, and I think that the market will will frankly sort that out. I mean, stories about Twitter pylons are interesting, but they're not news. I think there'll always be a market for for news, for for investigative journalism, for informed opinion content for uh you know for good reporting i think the issue with news is that um straight news is ubiquitous it's everywhere i mean you go to a petrol station and fill up your car and there's a ticker there with on the on the on the petrol pump with headlines about what's happening you know news is free no you can't make money off straight news anymore um you have to value add and you value add either by you know finding doing research and and uh, in-depth reporting that free sources can't, or you tack on analysis, or indeed you tack on opinion. Um, but people want, the, the bottom line is people want value for their money when it comes to news. And it's one thing to read something cute on, on BuzzFeed that comes with an internet ad, but for subscription revenue and to actually sell content, the content has to be good content and well-researched resource content. And that'll take people who are better journalists than to just jump on Twitter and, and write their whole story based on what a few lunatics on that platform say. Whether they're politicians or fellow journalists or MMA uh, athletes or authors or whatever it happens yeah. to oh, be. No, but there's nothing wrong with a politician making an announcement on Twitter. There's nothing wrong with a journalist breaking a story on Twitter. In fact, that's what's so great about Twitter. That's why it took off in the early days among <clears throat> political types because Latika Burke was a good example of this. She, she mastered Twitter. She was an early adopter and grew a huge following. She was, a, I think, worked for 3AW as a news reporter. Um, and end up yep. winning a walk like two years later because she was breaking all these stories directly on Twitter. She was the first to do it. And that's the whole point. Journalists will, will tweet about it before they even file to their employer. So I think that's fine. You know, I say things that get pe- picked up by the media and I'm happy that, you know, I get quoted as, you know, uh, IPA guy says X, Y, and Z. It's, it's a, not, it's an efficient way to get a message out. It's like sending out a media release, but the de- but there's a mis- there's a difference between that and conflating the, the debate that occurs on that platform with with a reflection of the feelings of wider society. I just don't think that's the case. And if we keep pretending it is the case, then we'll get um, you, you know, firstly, a, a worse policy solutions, but secondly, news that that is grossly inaccurate because it really doesn't reflect how people are feeling. You know, people, people, people who vote. Okay, uh, Gideon, it's been actually, we've done a fair bit of social media critiquing during the past little while, and I I hope the listeners find some of that uh, useful and to deal with some issues. Uh, but thanks for joining My me. My pleasure, mate. Tonight. It's always a pleasure. Always good conversation. <laughs> good, robust discussion. And, uh, I hope, okay. Well, look forward to uh, touching base with you again. At some always, mate. Soon. Looking forward to it. Cheers. Take care.